in uh, verse 11. Now, we, we, in, in Galatians, as I shared with you, the issue that Paul writes this letter is that a group of Jewish believers, so-called believers, have come and added to the gospel the works of the Jewish law, primarily circumcision and other things. In addition, to bolster their argument, they have attacked Paul's authenticity and authority as an apostle. Quickly, Paul you know, deals with the, the Judaizers adding of circumcision, Jewish law, to gospel. Then he begins to deal also with his apostolic authority. It's important because he's got, he doesn't want them, if they can take away from that, then they undermine his credibility. And we have seen that Paul dealt with the fact that he is authentic in being an apostle and not in any way inferior. Last week we saw, and not in any way subordinate to them, last week we saw that Paul then also establishes that the other apostles agreed with him in dealing with the whole concept of do you add works to grace and faith? And the answer is no, we don't. They're in agreement. Now, what we're going to see in the chapter two today, it, it, is, it is a masterful piece of writing by Paul because he, he takes one more aspect of his apostolic authority in dealing with Peter and the stumbling that Peter had. And in doing so, he brings the whole issue of whether or not you add works to grace in terms of the gospel to refute that. And, and as someone who spends, you know, I spend all day today working on uh, Sunday sermon, well, when I'm not on social media and uh, playing games on my phone. So I spent about an hour and a half today working on uh, sermon. Now, you know, I spend all this time on Sundays and Wednesdays trying to craft a way to communicate clearly and succinctly and simply the truth. And I read what Paul writes and I'm just like, this is amazing how he did this. How he does this is absolutely amazing. He starts off. He says, but when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch. Antioch was where Paul was stationed north of Jerusalem. It's the headquarters of the mission-minded church. It's a mixture of Gentile and Jewish believers. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He says, I opposed Peter. Remember, I've said to you many, many times about the book of Acts. The book of Acts focuses on Peter and Paul. These are the two giants of the faith. They have very little interaction. In Galatians, Paul mentions it briefly, the interaction they've had. And now an incident occurs. And let me just say this. Our, our tendency is to think chronologically. We're Americans, we write chronologically. But Jews and people of that day, they don't always write chronologically. Oftentimes they would write topically to deal with the topic or they might write in such a way as to deal with an issue and, and, and position the writing to deal with the issue logically. So this event may or may not have occurred after the event you see in the first part of chapter 2 where Paul goes down to Jerusalem and deals with the issue. It may not occur. It may have occurred before that, but logically it fits this way. It may have occurred after. We don't know, but it doesn't have to. Okay. So he's just saying, Peter's in Antioch. Here's what happens. Prior to coming, uh, prior to the coming of certain men from James, here's what Peter used to do. He used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they, the men from James, came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof or apart, fearing the party of the circumcision. Now, this whole issue had been about whether or not Gentiles, when they came to the gospel, had to be circumcised and become Jewish. There was a group of Jewish so-called believers, and Paul refused their being believers, who, who thought that way. It's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing issue. 
it is an issue that doesn't end in the gospel, in, in the epistle writing, the letter writing period. It's ongoing. And Paul fights all the time. And the, uh, and the philosophy has been, and the theology has been, you do not, as a Gentile, have to become Jewish. Now, these, these guys are coming, and Peter was a leader in that. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has his vision. Before Paul ever went to the, the Gentiles, Peter has a vision that it's okay to eat with the Gentiles. I mean, eating, we like this as Baptists, eating is everything. <laughs> Got to eat. You know, the, the, the eating for us, well, for them back then, it was more than just a meal. It was oftentimes a celebration or times of community. It's what they focused their lives around together and built stability. If you would not eat or break bread with somebody, that was a fracturing of the relationship. In order for the Gentiles to be fully accepted into the Christian faith, there had to be the community together. And so Peter, going into the home of Cornelius, to eat with him was huge. And last spring I talked about this is a monumental moment. This is a moment that changes the course of Christianity. Because the leader of the Christian movement, Peter, is eating with the Gentiles and it breaks down all the barriers. He did that all the time. He came to Antioch and did it all the time. And Paul says, but what happened, and this condemns Peter, is some guys came from Jerusalem. He says he came from James. That does not mean James sent them. It means they claim James sent them. But it's highly probable, especially if this falls, what happened earlier, that James would not send them to do this. These were men who were trying to find a way to turn the gospel into part of the Jewish system. And because they were powerful for some reason and because they put pressure, Peter succumbed to what they were doing. And it doesn't mean he rejected, but what happened most likely is this. They would meet together. You know, we, we have Lord's Supper. You know, we have it periodically. But they would, they would come together for Lord's Supper, but they also came together for weekly, for, for on a regular basis, for fellowship meals. They called them agape feasts, love feasts. They come together and they break bread. Oftentimes they'd have communion together. It was important in a world that was thoroughly pagan, in a world that was anti-Christian in so many ways, the church needed to come together and Jews and Gentiles would come. And when this happened, they would break bread. And when these Jewish believers came, they were appalled that Jews, even though they were Christians, would eat with Gentiles. It didn't matter if they were in Christ. These were Jews eating with Gentiles, breaking the dietary law. And they put tremendous pressure to either break away or not eat. So they would come to these agape feasts. And so what was happening would be that, that Peter and some of the other Jewish believers would then, instead of dining all together, they would separate to Jews and Gentiles. And in so-and-so, they were creating a rift or a division. And the implication would be if the Gentiles want to, to eat with the, the Jews, they need to be circumcised and follow the moral and dietary laws. Now, here's the thing. The laws were given to the Jews. They weren't given to the Gentiles. I know this is going to shock you in 21st century America. The Ten Commandments was not given to us. We follow the Ten Commandments because Jesus follows the Ten Commandments. Do you realize the reason we value the Old Testament as, as, Christian, as Gentile Christians is because Jesus did? Because Jesus came to, what's I say all the time, fulfill the Old Testament? The Old Testament promises something. Jesus fulfilled it. And because he fulfilled it, it's important to us. And we, I know we keep the Ten Commandments. I get it. I'm not going to go and um, I don't have any particular commandment I want to break. I'm not going to go lie anytime soon. Well, that's a lie. I'm not going to go steal anything anytime soon. 
But the important thing is they were for, for the Jews and Gentiles. If they had to keep the law to come to Christ, and Paul's going to give us the theology in the Bible in a minute, they wouldn't do it. And so he says, they became withdrawn. And the rest of the Jews joined in what he calls hypocrisy, the two-facedness. So even Barnabas was carried away by their part. Even Barnabas. Now remember, Barnabas, when Paul became a Christian, it was Barnabas who validated Paul. Barnabas came alongside Paul, befriended Paul. Barnabas had to go to Antioch. He took Paul. When it was time for the first missionary journey, Barnabas was going, Paul went. Until Acts, basically Acts 13, Barnabas, Paul was kind of somewhat subordinate to Barnabas. And you come out now, though, after Acts 14, when they all came back, it wasn't. But I mean, and, but Barnabas was doing this. So Barnabas of all people. And Paul couldn't believe it. He said, and I love it, he saw that when they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, the truth, when they were not being honest about it, he said to Cephas, in the presence of everybody, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Since, he says, if since, you're a Jew, but you live like the Gentiles. You break bread with them all the time. Y'all, we're one in communion and fellowship. Why are you now compelling them to be like these Jews over here? You have accepted them wholeheartedly. Now, why are you forcing them to follow the law? He reprimanded Peter. Now, in reprimanding Peter, this also shows the apostolic authority of Paul. And to Peter's credit, it appears that Peter took it well. Because basically what he's just saying is, in all of this, you used to eat over here. Now, why are you eating over there? We need to all eat back over here together because we're all one in Christ. And, it, and it, listen, it wasn't hard. Did the Jewish Christians still need to keep the dietary laws? Well, sure. But, you know, it was fine. I mean, just, it's just like I put it in terms Baptists can understand, at least older Baptists. So you meet together and you have fried chicken. Everybody can have fried chicken. You have some mashed potatoes. I have mashed potatoes. Have the biscuits. That's fine. And then, you know, somebody from the south, from Texas, brings the green beans. That's good, but they put bacon and ham in it. Well, if you're Jewish, you just don't eat the green beans. Pick, I just say pick the ham out, but I mean, I don't eat the green beans. Right, give me the ham. Just all they had to do, it wasn't complicated. Don't eat the bacon-wrapped shrimp. That's fine. But instead, because these Jewish guys were trying to overtake and hijack the faith, they made them separate out, which brings us then to the doctrine of it all. This is where Paul is bringing it. Now, I mean for the New American Standard, both the New American Standard and the NIV have the verses uh, 15 through the end of the chapter in basically in quotation marks, or most of it, as if Paul is still talking to them, most likely. In the Greek, there is no punctuation. <laughs> in the Greek, there ain't no punctuation. So when you translate Greek and have to translate punctuation, it ain't there. So... People, uh, so I hear people sometimes say, you know, I'm taking a little Greek. No, you're not. You're not taking Greek like I took Greek. Because you have no idea how hard all that is. Plus, if you take it like I take it, that means you might be able to fact check me, and I don't really like that. So Paul's probably summarizing what he said. He said, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles were considered that, that sinful group. Paul's just saying, you know, to a Jew, the Gentiles were sinners. They were apart from God by nature. We're, we're Jews. I get that. We're not Gentiles. Okay? We know there's a distinction. Nevertheless, 
Knowing that a man, and here's this beautiful word, is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. No one, he says, is justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And here's the most beautiful doctrinal points you can make. It's similar to Romans, and here it is. The word justified is it's such a key word. Uh, it's, it is a kind of a fancy technical churchy word and you know don't use it a whole lot in terms of justification but to be justified is a legal term and some people some scholars and commentators don't like the legal aspect it's a legal forensic term it means to be declared right to be made right in the eyes of a legal authority the, the greek word for justified is the same as the greek word for righteous or righteousness it's the same word context determines how you translate it but it's the same thing to be righteous is to be justified. To be justified is to be right in the eyes of God. It's not by works. And so the common analogy is to be in a court of law and uh, to be guilty of a crime and someone else pay for your crimes. As we'll use the idea of a fine. You, you know, you, you, you go to court, you owe money for a fine. Someone else pays the fine. The court doesn't care to the eyes of the court. The fine is paid. The debt is settled. You are made Right. Now, sometimes, a lot of guys say it's to be declared innocent or not guilty. It doesn't mean you're not guilty. It means that you are declared to be righteous, to be right. You're still, guys, someone said one time, the, the cliche, justified means just as if I'd never sinned. doesn't mean that. It means you did sin. That's the whole key, the justification. You sinned. You aren't without guilt. But the guilt, and more importantly, the crime, the stain of it is taken away. And God is satisfied like the court would be because of Jesus Christ. Jesus then satisfies the payment. He paid the price for our sins. Substitution, he died in our place. Sacrifice, he died on our behalf. How are we made declared right in the realm of Jesus Christ? In Jesus but it's through faith. So you've got to have faith. You've got to have, put your confidence. The word faith, the confidence, the trust, to give yourself over. Faith is a noun. Believe is a verb. Same Greek word. So that, that phrase, so that's so important. It is with the result or the purpose is this. We may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. This is a declarative statement. Paul is saying, it is not possible for any human endeavor to ever make you right before God. The only way you can ever be right before God is through Jesus, and it's because of the faith that he provides you, that you exercise in Jesus through faith, you are saved. You must put your life, you must put your confidence, you must trust Jesus completely. It's a fundamental ironclad argument. He says there is no work of the law. In verse 17 then, he picks up on someone who may give the argument. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we have been found to be sinners, is Christ in a minister of sin, may it never be. Now what, it's kind of a complicated, convoluted sentence. What it means is this. If Christ removes our sin so that obeying the law doesn't make us right, then basically what that means is 
you can be a sinner all you want and you can break the law all you want and Jesus will make you right. So there's no, there is no motivation to keep the law or to be right or to do things that are right because Jesus is going to save you anyways because you have faith. And Paul emphatically says, may that never be understood. Uh, a, a really good friend of mine that uh, grew up with and went to school with, uh, wonderful Christian lady, married to a Christian man, uh, and is again, but uh, I guess about eight years ago, about eight years ago, I think he left her. And his argument was, it, it was, it was it's one of these arguments that was popular, is that by my sinfulness, I am God and forgiven by the grace of Christ and he is glorified, so no matter what I do, even in my sin, Christ is glorified so that I can leave you and be right with God, and it's okay. There's a whole line of thought that goes that way. Paul deals with it. That's basically the line of thinking. What, what that line of thinking misses out on is this. When I become a follower of Christ, my whole way of looking at life changes because I have been saved. Why would I ever want to do that again? So if, if I owe the courts $10,000 because I did something wrong, and one time someone pays the price and I'm declared right, I don't ever again want to take the chance that I might do that thing over and owe that court money again because they may not be there to pay that fine next time. In other words, my attitude would change. It would be different theory in, in you know, that sense. When I become a follower of Christ, my whole view of, of being right changes. I want to live to honor God. I am overwhelmed that my sins have been taken away that I don't have to pay for that price. I'm overwhelmed that someone else paid for it. So in that understanding, I absolutely want to live to honor and glorify Jesus. That is the natural result of being made right. Once I'm declared right, I want to live rightly. I don't want to go back. And Paul deals with that a lot in different books. He's going to deal with us some more. So he says, may that never, never be. He says, it gives an example, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He said, I, I just got through telling you guys, I've I spent my life, you know, I, I was trying to you know, destroy Christianity, and then I became a follower of Christ, understanding that all the works of the law couldn't save us. If I'm rebuilding that up, then, then I'm just a sinner all over again. If you, go, if you bring the law back and start saying you have to be circumcised, and if you have to keep the law, then you're going to plunge yourself right back into the sin. You're going to try to be right in the eyes of God by your righteousness. And you're right back to being lost. What Christ did then has no effect. So in verse 18, 19 he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Another kind of complicated, it's what it means. I was living through the law, and then I died to the law so that I might live in Christ, so that I might live then, he says, to God. So I, I've died to the way of the law. Now, Paul's not saying he doesn't, he doesn't strive to keep. He's not saying the law is bad. Many times he'll say the law is good because it shows us our sinfulness. It shows us. So what's the value of the law? Well, the, the, in the Old Testament... The value of the law, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws, was to tell God's people, this is how I expect you to live. God said, once you become my people, my people keep these laws. He never said, 
in order for you to become my people, you keep these laws. He says, because you are my people, this is what I expect. When I come to Jesus Christ and I become a follower of his, part of the reason I'm concerned about my moral behavior is because once I become a follower of Christ, I live that way. So in the Sermon on the Mount, oftentimes Jesus kind of deals with the law a little bit. He talks about it, but he keeps reminding them, you have heard that it was said, do not commit murder, but you're my follower. You don't even hate people. Don't even hate them. Just don't, don't, don't have that attitude. Forgive people. Be reconciled. He just took all that and he expanded it. And then here's what he did. He boiled it all down into two commandments. Love God, love other people. So that's really what the, and even the Old Testament does that. Love God, love others. The purpose is the law points out the transgressions. How do I know I'm a sinner? Because there's a law to tell me I sinned. That's how. If I'm going down the road and a police officer pulls me over for excessive speed, which has not happened in quite some time, knock on wood. I'm just mildly superstitious. Plus, Brian hates it when people touch his guitar. And I say, well, what are you pulling me over for? And they always say, do you know why I pulled you over? And I never say yes. Why would I say yes? I said, I have no idea. I'm doing fine. He said, you were speeding. Really? I didn't know I was speeding. How was I supposed to know? Because there was a speed limit sign back there. It said 75 miles an hour. You were going 85. Well, I'm sorry. I thought that was the minimum speed. I didn't know it was the maximum. You were not clear. I thought if I went less than that. That does not work, by the way, in a court of law. So here's the thing. The law reminds me. It's a light that shines on my sinfulness. Then one of the great, great verses Paul ever writes. I have been, and he writes in such a way, speaks of a past act. I have been, I am crucified with Christ. The, lim- the, the effect of that lingers. When Jesus died, he was crucified. Crucifixion was the worst possible death. And that day goes, but when I came to Christ, I was crucified with him. That's what Jesus said. Be my follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, which means die and follow me. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the life which I now live in the flesh I live now by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a verse. I, the old Paul, he says, the old David is no longer alive. He died. He died on the cross the day I gave my life to Christ. The day I trusted Jesus to be my Savior. That old self died on the cross. Now, I realize I still sin. That's not the point. I died. And when I died, Jesus Christ lives in me. He does it through the power of the Holy Spirit from a doctrinal standpoint, but he lives in me. And now the life I live, I still live in the flesh. But now I live by not the law. I'm not trying to keep the law. I live by faith. I live by faith in the Son of God. And it's so beautiful. Who loved me and gave himself. And that's what Paul says. There are a lot of places, you know, John, God so loved the world. Jesus said God so loved the world, and he does. And, and we talk about loving people and the lost. Now Paul makes it personal. Remember, he's, he's writing to this church. He says, Jesus loved me. He gave himself for me. Why in the world are you going to try to follow the law 
to save your sorry soul. When the law never worked. The law never worked for the Jews. That's why Jesus came. Why would you want to even think about going back to that system when Jesus, who loved you, gave himself for you, and all you've got to do is trust him? And he ends this way. I do not cancel out, nullify the grace of God, because he couldn't. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. His death was useless. So if you're going to come back, and this is why Paul said the Judaizers weren't true followers of Christ, but they were false believers. They were lost. If you're going to come back and say, to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of God, which saves you through faith. If you're going to come back and you're going to add the law, then the death of Christ was useless. It's useless. And we're all lost in our sin. And we're all doomed to hell. There's not a thing you can do about it. So quit adding stuff to the gospel. Well, I would like to say, quit making stuff up. We are saved by grace through faith. And we are declared right by God and made right in his eyes only because of Jesus and not do anything you and I could ever do. There's nothing else we could ever add to that. And the beauty of this passage is how Paul takes the two things he was fighting about, or defending, I should say, they were accusing him of, that he's not really an apostle, and he's got a bad doctrine, and he blends them together in the clearest possible way to say you can add nothing to the gospel, including baptism and church membership and the Lord's Supper in your view of the end times, in your view of creation, and whether or not you tithe, that's iffy, a gift, but any of those things. Don't add, you can't add any of that to the gospel. All right, questions you may have, and I've got a couple of minutes before Juan is out. Good to know you don't have questions, because I'll be honest, I don't have answers. Oh, too soon. All right. You may ask. Good. Your parents were good people. And um, we were always taught that once saved, always Absolutely. Saved. So, so even if you committed murder or whatever, you know, you were still saved even after your... Yeah. So, you know, we, we believe... Baptists, we, call, we put it passively, once saved, always saved. It's a passive way of saying... What is a better phrase is the saints persevere to the end. But Calvin said that, and Baptists don't, for some reason, think they can like Calvin for some strange reason, even though Calvin influences just about every part of our theology. So um, the, 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 do, the doctrinal teaching is that we persevere in our salvation. Um, so we never lose it, but you can't lose what you don't have either. So some people who... who it looks like they committed apostasy or rejected Christ were never truly saved no matter what their past were. So um, the key thing is, yes, whatever sins we commit, we're forgiven. 
But there is a difference between committing a sin and continuing a lifestyle that reflects a sinful condition. And so we would say that a person who's going to live a lifestyle that reflects a sinful condition is not truly saved. They have not repented of that. You can still, you know, we all sin. So, yeah. So, yeah. Now, probably the rationale behind committing murder might indicate whether a person was truly saved or not. That might be an indicator they weren't saved. But it wouldn't lose cost your salvation, in case any of you are calculating at that point. Does that help? Anything else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so, and Brian actually preached that on his message, and he did a semi-decent job of explaining it uh, <laughs> on the area that my doctor is in. So, he's talking to Christians. Salt, think about salt and light, or understand what their primary function was, its influence. Salt penetrates and preserves that which rots and decays. That's what you put, they would put salt on meat. Light penetrates darkness. So their functionality is at issue, not their salvation. So if, if you, the salt becomes adulterated, it doesn't cease to be salt. The chemical compound is still salt, but its usefulness deteriorates. So if a Christian loses their moral influence, which you see quite often. So um, I believe there's a president of a, a past president of a, uh, Liberty Baptist College named Jerry Falwell, who just lost his, his became salt, his became adulterated, lost his influence, didn't lose his salvation, but no one's ever going to trust him, hopefully, ever again with his influence. So it's about losing the influence you have in the world and not your salvation, to use a modern illustration. Anything else? So I had answers after all. I didn't know it. It's okay. We'll see y'all hopefully Sunday. <laughs>